real privilege to be able to speak to you here uh, today, um, you know, being together after such a long time. But I'm obviously conscious there are people as well who are with us on Zoom for various reasons, so you are, of course, also very, very, very welcome. Um, I'd like you to think a bit about the title I've given this talk, which is A Life Well Lived. And I'd like you to think about what that means. What is a life well lived? What does it mean to live life well? And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to us now. It's going to give us some answers um, to that question. Um, I'm not going to read the passage first. Instead, we'll kind of work through it together. But don't worry, we will read every verse of the psalm, but we'll just work through it together if, if that's okay. So um, turn with me, if you would, to your Bibles. I uh, hope this is working. Is it? Oh, I haven't switched it on. That would help. I also had this um, mic on upside down uh, until Alex told me. Is that working? No. Oh, it is. There we go. Perfect. Um, so, let me find it in my Bible. So, Psalm uh, 49. Right, well, this psalm grabs our attention right from the outset. Let's read just verses 1 and 2 together. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. This is a message that everyone needs to hear. It's a message of crucial importance. It's for both the rich and the poor, and it's for the high and the low. That is, those that are influential and important in society, those that maybe uh, don't feel what they are. They feel ignored. They feel voiceless. It doesn't matter. It's a message for everyone. No one is excluded. Everyone needs to hear this message. I wonder what you would think of as a message that would be worthy of that kind of cry, maybe a cure for cancer or you know, a drug that could heal anyone that's sick with coronavirus at the moment, or maybe a word that would stop racism and discrimination in its tracks. But here in this psalm, we're going to see something quite different, as good as those suggestions might be. We're going to see a message from the living God inspired by the Holy Spirit. So after grabbing our attention, what next happens is the psalmist tells us why they're writing, what they're trying to do. Read with me verse 3. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. It's clear that the writer wants to teach us wisdom and understanding. Now, wisdom and understanding are in the Bible expressed in terms of God's ways and God's purposes. For example, Proverbs 9.10 reads... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So in the end, to, to follow God and obey God is true wisdom, and to turn from him and his ways is foolishness. And the wisdom that the Bible always gives us is a practical wisdom. It's not a kind of philosophical wisdom. It's a real, practical, lived-out wisdom. Let's look at verse 4. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Uh, here we see the writer's going to write uh, or inquire into a proverb or a riddle, something that's kind of hidden, something that's going to require some discernment, some thinking about, meditation upon even. This is not necessarily going to be easy, and I don't think it's necessarily going to be popular opinion either. The wisdom of the world, what the world out there thinks of as wisdom, is very often foolishness in God's eyes. So, the riddle, what is it? We see that in verses uh, 5 to 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble? 
when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. We see, don't we, that for the psalmist, he's living in a time when the rich and wealthy are cheating him. Now, we don't really know the details. Very often in the psalms, we don't know the details of people's situations, but clearly there are people acting deceitfully, hurtfully, uh, they're acting sinfully towards him in some sort of way, and they're also successful. I mean, they're rich, and they look like, don't they, on the outside, that somehow God's maybe blessing them. And so he's asking the question, why should I fear when those wicked fools that don't know God and don't care for God's ways are harming me, and yet God seems to be blessing them with riches and wealth? It's a bit like that old question of why do good things happen to bad people or why do bad things happen to good people, right? We assume, don't we, that if God cares for us, then he will protect us and he will bless us. That somehow wise, righteous living is going to lead to prosperity and that foolish, evil living is going to lead to poverty. And sometimes that is true. But it isn't always the case. Christians are persecuted in many places around the world. They're often persecuted economically, that is, they're kept in poverty. In some places around the world, Christians are much poorer than the societies in which they live. Bad things we know happen to believers and unbelievers. We probably know that from our own personal lives. We can be hurt by others, cheated by others, whether we're believers or whether we're unbelievers. And blessings as well can be showered on us, but also on others who aren't believers. The question is, what are we to make of this? How are we to make sense of it? Well, uh, we have the first part of the solution, which is in verses 7 to 10. So far we've had the summons, calling everyone to listen to this wisdom, this riddle that the psalm's going to answer. And the question goes, I think, something like this, is how I've kind of phrased it. What do I do when God blesses the ungodly with wealth and riches whilst the godly suffer? I'll say that again. What do I do when God blesses the ungodly with wealth and riches whilst the godly suffer? Now, in verses 7 to 10, the psalmist goes straight for the jugular. He's going to give us an unfiltered, sort of undiluted reality check on this question, something very challenging. So we'll look together at verses 7 to 10. So verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. What we've got here is a devastating blow to the power of riches and worldly wealth. He's saying, isn't he, that all the money in the world cannot buy back your life. He's saying that everyone is going to die at some point. That is certain. And when you do, your riches will be of no use in preventing that event from happening. And in verse 10, he acknowledges that even the wise and the foolish die. Even the godly and the ungodly die. And you can't bribe God with money. You can't, no matter how much you've got, you can't stop the fact that you or maybe someone that you love or you care for is going to die. So in the face of death, we see that wealth is totally powerless. It has immense power in this life, I don't want you to think that I'm not saying that. It does. It's why people run after it. But when death comes, it's useless. You could be uh, as rich as Jeff Bezos. He just went up into space, didn't he, and came back down again. But he cannot buy a single day to add to his life. He cannot do it. 
So firstly, then, wealth is powerless in the face of death. Secondly, it's temporary, not permanent. There's a story that J. John tells of a, of a, a wealthy old man who dies, and the family and friends are gathered in the kind of dining room, waiting for the solicitor to come in and reveal the last will and testament. And everyone's sort of asking, you know, how much money did he have? You know, how much is he going to leave us? How much am I going to get? How much is this person going to get? And when the solicitor walks into the room, someone asks, well, what has he left us? And the solicitor replied, everything. He's left everything. You see, verse 10 tells us, doesn't it, that when we die, we must leave our wealth to others. We cannot even take our riches with us to the grave to comfort us. Okay, uh, verses 11 to 13. Um, in verses 11 to 13, the psalmist then digs the knife in even deeper. Because so far, he's kind of exposed the weakness of wealth itself, its emptiness. Now he's going to focus on the people that are trusting in it and boasting in it. He looks at the human heart that delights in and seeks after wealth, possessions, money, for all the power and advantage and security that it would give us. Let's look at verse 11. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. They named lands after themselves. That's something that happened in the time of the psalmist. And the irony of this verse is that the psalmist is basically saying the only place that could appropriately be named after them is the grave, because that's where they're going to be for eternity. And isn't this something we really see in our own day as well? I mean, people name things after themselves, don't they? They name companies, they name awards, they name buildings after themselves, sort of Trump Tower, for example. And there's something in us, isn't it, that wants to be famous, to be uh, recognized, to be revered, to be remembered. We may not be in a place to name buildings after ourselves, most of us in here, but we still want titles for ourselves very often, don't we, in our careers, maybe? Or we want recognition for how we served or done something nice or kind to someone else. The question for us is, are we happy to know that God sees, and that's actually enough? Let's look at verses 12 and 13. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. We see that man, in all his pomp and glory, all the ways he celebrates himself and others, will not remain. You know, man achieves great things like going to the moon, but also in smaller things like just the clothes we wear, the car we drive, right? The ways we make ourselves feel good about ourselves, maybe the technology that we have or we use. They're ways that we boost our self-esteem, that we use it to boost our self-image. But the psalmist says, instead, they just die like animals in the field. They're just like a wild animal. They're there one day, and they're gone the next. Okay, so, so far this is all quite depressing, but I think you'll probably see that it is true. I mean, it's hard to argue um, against this, really. Now, verses 14 to 15, we're going to see kind of the second part of the answer. We've only really seen the first part so far. So we're going to see the second part to the answer. What do I do, remember this is the riddle, when God blesses the ungodly with wealth and riches whilst the godly suffer? We've seen so far the emptiness and powerlessness of, the, of wealth in the face of death. And we've also seen the delusion, if you like, of the human heart that trusts in it and desires it and places their security in it above all things. But in verses 14 to 15, 
the psalm's going to confront the problem of death itself. Because so far, I mean, it's said, hasn't it, that everyone dies, wise and foolish, godly, ungodly. So you could argue, well, maybe it isn't so stupid to run after wealth and riches, at least while we're here. But you see, there are two types of death. There's a hopeless death and a hopeful death. We'll look again at verses 14 and 15. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Oh, I've got to move on, haven't I? Let me move on. I'll read that again. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. You see, the hopeless death is the death of the one that has confidence and trust and security in wealth and riches. They're boasting in it. Their hope is in it. And they use their money to give themselves security, comfort, and maybe to make themselves look good in other people's eyes, to impress others. But it says that this person is just shepherded to death. It's you know, a bit like a sheep is just gently led by the shepherd to death. And the death they face is one in which they're consumed in shale. Now, shale is just an Old Testament word really for the grave. It's the place where the dead go. If we jump ahead to verse 19, I'll just do that quickly there. It says, uh, For his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. So we see that uh, this is an eternal death of darkness, a death without end and a death without hope. But the hopeful death, remember there's a hopeless death, but there's also a hopeful death, by contrast is the one of the writer of this psalm. He says, doesn't he, God will ransom my soul from the power of shale, from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. That's verse 15. There's a hope that when the godly die, their life will be redeemed by God, to be with God. And we saw earlier in verse 7 to 8, it reads, I'll read it again, Truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. But the godly wise know that whilst they may not be able to pay for their own life to be ransomed, God can pay for it. There's a hope of grace that God in his kindness is going to ransom and redeem um, his chosen ones from the grave. Now, why is this grace? It's grace because the reason we die, the reason that we die in the first place is our rejection and our rebellion against God. He's the one for whom all things were made. He's the one for whom we should be living. But we decide instead, don't we, to live our own lives our own way. We become rulers of our own lives, judges of our own lives. We've rejected God. And so we're at fault. Death, in a sense, is God's judgment on us, a righteous judgment on us. But it's grace because God still showers his kindness on us. He's still willing to pay a ransom for us to be redeemed. Now, the psalmist here, I think, is only seeing a truth in kind of early form. We see this much later. This was written before the time of the New Testament. We see, don't we, that the ransom price that is paid ultimately is the life of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 5, 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So for those who have faith and trust 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers himself on the cross for us as the ransom price for our sin, we have a death full of hope. Because as Jesus died and rose to a new resurrected life, we will be united with him in his resurrection to live with God. And this hope means, doesn't it, we're freed. We're freed from a love of money. We're freed from a jealousy of the possessions of others. Because firstly, we see these things are fleeting anyway. And secondly, if we trust in God through Christ, we have hope of eternal life with God. And those are true riches. So the question for us is, is our hearts, or are our hearts, filled with gratitude for the salvation we've received in Christ? Or are we instead finding ourselves jealous and envious of others, resentful towards those that might have hurt you? Maybe we need to look again at the eternal perspective. That the powerlessness and emptiness of wealth and worldly success and the amazing grace and glory of eternal life in Christ. So lastly, then we'll look at verses 16 to 20 to finish. There we go. Um, now, uh, we'll read them first. Uh, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. In many ways, this, this conclusion kind of restates much of what the psalm has already said, uh, I think, to re-emphasize it. As we're short on time, I just want to focus on one more thing. And that's verses 18 to 19. Now, verses 18 to 19, if you look at them again, we could read them again. Uh, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his father's who will never again see light. We see, don't we, that it's not the opinion and assessment of our life that matters, our own assessment of it. Neither is it the assessment of others on our life that matters. What matters is what God says about our lives. The writer freely admits that those that trust in wealth will be praised by others, but it's God's opinion that counts. And that's kind of the way the world goes, isn't it? Uh, you get a promotion, you, I don't know, you make a good investment or something, people congratulate you. Um, maybe they're jealous of you, they wouldn't tell you that probably. You know, they praise your lovely car, they praise your lovely house. We say that in the end, it's God's assessment that counts. And what is that assessment? It's what we're trusting in. You see, there's two types of trust. There's trust in worldly wealth and riches on one hand, and there's trust in God on the other. It's worldly riches or Christ. And we have to make our minds up which one we're going to trust in. So I'm not saying here that owning a nice car or a nice house is necessarily foolishness. Um, I think these things can be received with thankfulness from God and I think as well we can use them to bless others and give to others. But we must hold them lightly. And we must acknowledge their ultimate emptiness and that the love of Christ is superior to all things. So then we see, don't we, the solution to this riddle. What do I do when God blesses the ungodly with wealth and riches whilst the godly suffer? It's that we need to see things from an eternal perspective. Those who serve money and possessions and worldly acclaim will face an eternally hopeless end. And that's basically a life gone wrong, a life that has not been lived well, though it may not look like that now. 
Instead, those who trust in and worship the Father for the grace he's given us in his Son, Jesus Christ. We're freed from a trust in or a desire for money or possessions or anything else. It could be popularity, it could be achievements or whatever, fill in the gap, whatever else you might want to run after. Because we know we have an eternal hope in Christ in which we will live with him forever. That's a life well lived. Amen.